Workforce Health Engagement, Episode 29, Behavioral Economics for Business Leaders, How to Turn the Good Intentions of Your Workforce into Positive Results, featuring Bob Neese. Welcome to Workforce Health Engagement, a show exploring strategies to improve your employees' health and productivity and to protect your bottom line. Join us as industry experts discuss how to engage employees in population health management, wellness, and healthcare consumerism. This is a special series by the producers of the top-rated podcast, Engaging Leader. And now, with 20 years of experience as a communication consultant to Fortune 500 companies, helping engage hundreds of thousands of employees, here's your host, Jesse Leahy. Welcome to the show, Engagers. Behavioral economics has shown that people's choices and actions often are not based on rational decisions. If you're a benefits manager or the leader of a wellness program, this explains why some of your best efforts at plan design, incentives, and participant education have frustrating results. We often assume incorrectly that if we give people the right information and financial carrots and sticks, they will adopt healthier behaviors and make smart consumer choices. When that doesn't happen, in our frustration, we may conclude that employees lack information or moral strength, or perhaps they actually have bad intentions. However, the data shows that's not the case. Lots of people already believe in the value of the behaviors that are being promoted. Instead, it's inattention and inertia that lead to behaviors that don't match what people want to do. Today, we're going to talk about how to use the science of behavioral economics to activate the good intentions that people already have. The new book, The Power of 50 Bits, The New Science of Turning Good Intentions into Positive Results, is the first practical guide for business leaders to apply behavioral economics to activate the good intentions of people in their workforce. The author of the book is Bob Neese, Ph.D. He served many years as the chief scientist at Express Scripts. Bob was also an associate professor of internal medicine at Washington University in St. Louis and an assistant professor at the Geisel School of Medicine at Dartmouth. Bob Neese, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Bob, what's the overarching theme of 50 bits? So your brain and my brain, all of our brains each process 10 million bits of information a second, but the conscious part of your brain, the mind, that process is only 50 bits per second, which is, you know, there's a huge difference there. So effectively, that means our brains are wired for inattention and inertia. And that's really what is at the heart of many of our bad behaviors. The result of this wiring is a gap between what people really want to do if they stop and think about it and what they actually do. And the book reveals seven practical strategies that readers can use every day to overcome the limitation, to close the intent behavior gap, and to enjoy better results. So people's choices and actions often are not based on what we might call rational decisions, which can be frustrating when we think of ourselves not being as logical as we might think. But it's, it's not that we're totally random either, is it? There's, uh, you say there's three shortcuts that our brains tend to fall back on. Well, our brains, you know, the, the way to understand this, these shortcuts and the fact that we're not always rational is that our brains are built for a time and a place far, far away. About 100,000 years ago, that's when modern humans emerged. And because our brains, you know, we have these only this 50 bits to spend on 
conscious decision making, a lot of what we did is auto, or what we do is automatic and happens under the radar. And that means that we use these shortcuts to get things done. Those shortcuts represent what worked a long time ago. Some of that hasn't changed. Some of it's changed quite a bit. There are three main shortcuts that you need to keep in mind. One is the shortcut of fitting in, and that's to just sort of do what the rest of the group is doing and do what the rest of the group expects and to keep an eye on potential cheating. So we used to we used to operate in these very tight groups, and in some ways we still do. We're very sensitive to people who might take part of the group benefit but not contribute to the benefit. Um, that's, you know, this eye towards... Um, potential cheating. But there's also other things, you know, what are other people doing? What are other people expect? Um, and there's a, you know, there's a wealth of uh, research into the effect of norms that are socially based and how people tend to gravitate towards them. That's the first shortcut. The other one is, the second one is that we work really hard to avoid losses. We don't treat losses and gains sort of on the same scale. We work much harder to avoid losses than to pursue gains. And the reason that was so useful so long ago is that the environment was really risky. And if you, you know, we were just living barely on the edge uh, in terms of uh, calories and getting by. And so if you took a risk and it didn't pan out, there might be a, there might be a very good chance that you weren't going to survive. Uh, a gain would be nice, but it you know it wouldn't put you in a wildly different place. So people are real, t- they tend to be um, much more sensitive to losses than they are to gains. And the other is to be biased towards the present, which means grab the rewards and benefits now and push the losses um, into the future. And those, all those three things, those shortcuts, you know, worked really well uh, when they were developed. But the world has changed r- dramatically, faster, in fact, than our brains can change. And just in the last 300 years since the Industrial Revolution. So in some ways, our brains are sort of like fish out of water. We've got these shortcuts that work so well for so long. Sometimes they work, sometimes they don't work. It's not really a matter of our behavior being rational or irrational. Actually, most of our behaviors are automatic. The question is whether automatic behaviors are adaptive or maladaptive. Um, and the strategies, of course, that you want to use to activate good intentions are sensitive to that. One of the things I love about your book is you just mentioned these strategies and you actually provide a strategic framework that takes all this great stuff of the science of behavioral economics and puts it into a form that's actually useful for business people. There's been plenty of great books and articles written in in the last few years uh, by very smart behavioral economists, but this is the first time we really have a a handbook, a guidebook for the business leader. What was it that caused you to fill that void? Well, I was the chief scientist at a healthcare company called Express Scripts, and my job and the job of my team there was to come up with new products and services and to enhance the products and services that we had that would create better behaviors on the part of our uh, patients, basically. You know, we were we were in the pharmacy, the sort of the, you know, prescription drug side of healthcare, which is a small part, but an important part. It's the front end of a lot of what happens in in healthcare. And, uh, you know, there are just three behavioral hiccups when it comes to prescription medications. People, you know, not taking their drugs at the medications as prescribed, using a more expensive drug when a less expensive drug will do, or getting their drugs through a distribution channel that's you know, not as safe or costs more, but isn't any better. And those, just those three behavioral hiccups cost, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars in the United States 
each year. And so I became fascinated about how do you, you know, how can you change those behaviors? And, it, and when I first tackled them, I went after them the way a classical economist or an engineer would. I just assumed that people didn't know any better or they weren't incentivized to the right behavior. And so we provided information and we fiddled with incentives and, you know, not much happened. It was really, it was really disturbing. And then I stumbled on to this realization that a lot of people have had that, you know, most of what we do is, it really happens under the radar. And I became convinced that it was better to change the environment in which our patients found themselves so that their natural inclinations led them to better behaviors. So that's kind of why we did it. But the fact that I had to do it in a corporate setting with tens of thousands of employees and, you know, deliver practical products that our clients could use and would value, that really pushed me to a framework that our team could carry around, ten, really tens of thousands of employees could carry around in their heads that made sense, that was differentiated from our competition, and that actually and actually worked. And so that is what led to this framework. And when I got done with it, I realized that um, the same minds that were having hiccups about taking prescription medications are also having hiccups about saving for the future and about exercising and about eating correctly and about so many other things. I mean, behavioral is just mission critical to the human endeavor. And so I realized that the insights that we'd had in solving problems in prescription drug behaviors was actually much, much, much bigger and much richer. And, and that was the impetus for the book. So this framework is built on seven strategies three power strategies, three enhancing strategies, and one Uber strategy. I think for the sake of time today, if we could focus on helping our listeners understand the three power strategies, that um, why those work, and an example of th- those really working in real life, uh, I think that folks would find that really helpful. Yeah. And uh, especially how they, how they actually address uh, one or more of those three challenges that uh, that tend to get in the way of um, that cause people to, to function uh, uh, automatically instead of what we might think of as rationally yeah yeah I'd love to do that so remember we'll step back and um, I'm, I'm sort of doing this in an audio version trying to create a picture in in your listeners heads um, the two problems are inattention and inertia so the strategies tend to address either one of those problems or maybe some of them address both they either try to demand attention so that we grab the users 50 bits the customer us our clients our loved ones grab their 50 bits and say you know we really need you to tell us do you want to do this or do you want to do that that's one set of strategies and the other set of strategies is sort of like psychological, um, jujitsu, you know, it, it really is, we're going to take as a given that, um, that people are just going to go the way they go. You know, once they're on a path, they're going to, they're going to stay on that path. And the, those set of solutions are to try to get people on the right path and then get out of the way. We don't need their attention. I mean, once they're headed the right direction, let inertia do its thing. And so the strategies sort of go across that. That's a spectrum that the, that the, the strategies sit on and the three power strategies sit on that spectrum as well. So let me give you an example that I, I'll give you a few examples, uh, you know, from each of the, each of these three strategies, the three, three strategies are let it ride, which is to use opt outs effectively. And your listeners will understand what I mean by that in a minute. Um, lock in good intentions, which is to make a decision now 
that makes it really difficult to do the wrong thing in the future. Or, and the third one is to require choice, to stop people and say, do you want to do this or do you want to do that? So let me give you one on, on let it ride, which is the, which is the opt-outs. Your listeners all know about 401k savings plans. It used to be, you know, 20 years ago or so, a, a person would join a company and the HR person would say, welcome to company XYZ. We have a personal retirement savings plan. If you'd like to contribute, we'll, you know, we'll match up to the first 3%. Let us know. We'll, you can fill out these forms and then you'll be in the program. And when you do that, even with the matching, the participation rates are around 30 or 40%. You can flip it around and now most employers do this. Welcome to company XYZ. We have a 401k plan. We're putting you in it. We're going to take 3% of your salary. We're going to match that 3%. If you don't want to do that or you want to change your contribution rate or the distribution, you know, let us know and we'll change it. But if you don't do anything, you're in. And when you do that, participation rates are around 80 or 90% and the employees are just as happy. That's an example of letting it ride. You put people on the path to better behavior and you tell them if you want out, uh, you can. That's really familiar to folks, and, and so that's not shocking. I wouldn't think that people are going to go out and buy the book to read about 401ks. <laughs> but the idea, I mean, what we need to do is strip away and remember the essence. The essence is, you know, there, there's a default. Um, there's an, uh, when, you, uh, when you architect an environment, when you engineer an environment, there can be, either implicitly or explicitly, an assumption about the default behavior. And we need to be serious about thinking about that. So let me give you another example. You're in, you're in, you've got a lot of office workers and you're an employer and you're concerned that your employees are sitting around too much. One strategy would be you put signs up in the break area and saying, you know, it's important to get up and walk around. And you might hold a seminar every once in a while to say, you know, just remember to get up every hour and walk around a little bit. That'd be one strategy and I bet it wouldn't work very well. <laughs> The other strategy would be to go into your meeting spaces and your conference rooms and remove all the chairs, mm. right? I mean, what we do typically in meeting spaces is to set the default to sitting down. And, and sometimes the chairs are spectacularly comfortable. I mean, <laughs> we, are, we are really trying to, whether we want to or not, we are advantaging sedentary behavior. So you can move the chairs far away. If somebody wanted a chair, they could go get it. I mean, they could default out of standing up. Um, but that's an example. And that, you know, that seems a little far-fetched, but if you're serious about getting people to move around a little bit more, then you need to be serious about looking at new solutions and opt out. Although it seems like, you know, this old gray haired, you know, sort of solution to things, that's because we haven't applied the, the basic essence and insight across a bunch of other behaviors. So that's, that's an example. Even if you just took some of your conference rooms and, remove the chairs and maybe had some some standing height tables for people to meet around so that people could choose exactly to go to a healthier room r rather than a regular room I, that would make a big difference with with a lot of people it, it, that would make a big difference you know there's uh, I, I think it would be great if when you schedule a meeting and the you know this could all be done automatically you schedule a meeting and if it's only for two or three people um, you know, it, the, the scheduler should ask you, do you really want a meeting room or do you, you know, do you want to walk around while you do it? Do you need a whiteboard? If you need a whiteboard, you need a meeting room. Um, but there, there's a lot of meetings that people could have that um, would, you know, could, could be done walking around. And I suspect, you know, a byproduct of having a, a quote, standing meeting, which is not what we usually mean by a standing meeting. <laughs> The meetings would probably be shorter. I mean, I think they might be shorter. It's just not as pleasant to stand around. Maybe that's not true. I mean, maybe people would socialize more. I don't know, but that's that's an example. Um, 
There's another example uh, that was very successful at Express Scripts, another strategy. That's the require choice strategy. Um, and we all know this one. If you, if you go to the um, uh, gas station to fill up your car, often it'll ask you if you want a car wash or not, you know, and you have to say yes or no and push the button. That's active choice. Um, and, and the people who are designing that strategy or that uh, approach, they understand that there's a latent interest in car washes. They're not pitching you a car wash. They're not telling you how important it is for the, you know, your undercarriage to stop rusting by getting your car washed. They're not doing any of that kind of stuff, right? They're just assuming there are a bunch of people who, would get their car washed if you stopped them long enough to get them to think about it and who wouldn't do it otherwise. And so the gas, the gas pump stops and asks them and they generate sales simply by going after latent demand. Um, and that happens because people are wired for inattention and inertia and that creates a gap between their intentions if they were to stop and think about them and their actual behaviors. There's a bunch of other examples in the book. One of my favorite examples in the book from about PetSmart Charities, which has been wildly successful using active choice. We use this at Express Scripts because there are a bunch of people who are taking maintenance, uh, taking medications for a chronic condition, or maintenance medications, what we call them. These are pills you have to take every day for something like diabetes, high blood pressure, high cholesterol. They could save money by getting those prescriptions through a home delivery pharmacy, that's a mail order pharmacy, more convenient, cost less, much safer because all the uh, pill dispensing is automated. Um, you know, lots of advantages, not for everybody, but lots of advantages. But we found that a lot of patients weren't using it. And so, um, you know, the old strategy, the old school approach would be let's convince them about how great home delivery was. You know, let's fiddle around with co-payments, help them save even more, and nothing much happens. Once we understood that, that this sort of 50 bits challenge that people are wired for inattention and inertia, we came up with a different strategy, which was to stop people at the retail pharmacy who are getting their pills for their maintenance medications filled there and just ask them, just say, you just have to tell us, do you want to keep getting them here or do you want to get them in home delivery? Now, if people were really loyal to their, lo to their local pharmacists, which is what we had heard, they would be telling us, no, I want to stay here. But about a third to a half of patients actually said, you know what, I, I actually would like to move to home delivery. I just never got around to it. Hmm. And so when, you, when we implemented that program, we had you know, droves of people moving from retail uh, to home delivery. So these, these strategies can be incredibly powerful. And that became, that became the fastest selling program that we had at Express Scripts in the history of the in the history of the company. Wow. So just to be clear, how how did that actually logistically work? Were these was this a phone call, outbound phone call, or a mailing? We had uh, three waves, and so there was a there was sort of this preparatory wave that said, by such and such a date, you need to make an election of whether whether you want to get your medications in retail or home delivery. And a bunch of people, you just have to call in and let us know. The, the, and the in the proto, the first, the very first experiment, the prototype, which was with uh, Lowe's Home uh, Improvement Company, um, they called in. Uh, and later we re-engineered all the systems so people could just go online and, you know, say, I want to get it here, I want to get it there. But on the early one, that's what we did. We explained, you know, how, how to call in. And we, there was no fuss, there was no sales pitch when somebody calls in. It was really like, you know, just active choice. We just need you to tell us what you want. We're not going to, it's no high pressure sort of stuff. Just, we just need to know you. It's important enough for you to tell us what you want. The second phase was um, that they would go into the pharmacy and if they hadn't made an election, 
not if they had said, I want to keep getting into pharmacy, but they just hadn't told us what they wanted. Then within 48 hours, they got a message from uh, from us or from Lowe's saying, basically, we've asked, you know, you, it's really important by such and such a date, you need to let us know. Um, and we picked up a ton of the uh, patients at that point. And I don't mean moving them to home delivery, but just making an election one way or another. And then finally, on the third round, which was three months after the after the first wave, the first sort of letters that went out saying you need to make an election, if they went into their retail pharmacy and they hadn't made an election, uh, they could not get their prescription filled at that right at that moment. So what they needed to do, they could call on their cell phone immediately and tell Express Scripts, no, I want to get it in retail or no, I want to get it in a home delivery. That was a minority of the patients who, you know, who hadn't made an election at that point. But either way, they got their pills right that day. So even if they decided to move to home delivery, they would get a prescription filled in retail to bridge them until they got their home delivery um, prescription filled. And because because this is really fair, I mean, we, we really designed the thing to just say what the only thing we're requiring is that you tell us what you want. We didn't change any incentives. We didn't change any of the information. We didn't change any of the assistance that we gave. Those were all in place beforehand. It was really just this is an important enough decision to stop you and to, to have you tell us what you really want. Um, it worked very well. And, and the patients were very, very positive about it. You know, it wasn't that we were trying to force them to do anything except to tell us what we want. And the HR people, of course, loved it because it's a very easy message. You know, the diff- there were some plan sponsors who were requiring that patients get their maintenance medications filled through home delivery. That communication is really difficult because there are some patients who would rather be in getting their prescriptions filled in a retail pharmacy. So there would always be this tension because home de- the, the HR folks would be saying, yeah, we think home delivery is better for you. And the patient's saying, well, it's not really better for me. And why are you forcing me to do it? With this program, the, the HR department just say, look, all we're asking you to do is tell us what you want. Either one's okay with us, but you, but you have to tell us. It's important enough for you to tell us what you want. Um, it was really a breakthrough program. And it was the, it was, that was the case where I really understood that these things could be put into practice where the rubber meets the road and you could, you know, you could see things happen. You could see the world change before your eyes. It was, it was a a real pivot point in my professional life. So we've talked about um, some examples of setting a default option, letting people opt out of it if they want. We've talked about uh, requiring active choice before we go on to the third one, I just want to, you're reminding me, you've made, this discussion of the prescription drug reminds me of an, another example of putting these strategies into practice. And uh, that's on the issue of uh, helping people choose a more cost-effective drug. Oftentimes that would be a generic drug. Yeah. Uh, how would you apply either the, the default or the active choice strategy when it comes to getting people into um, more cost-effective medications? Yeah, the, the one that, I, that comes to mind, which was, you know, one of the more effective ones was we, um, and this is slight, this is kind of like active choice, and it's kind of like the third strategy that we're going to talk about, is, um, is uh, asking people whether or not, if they were to face in the future a choice um, a, dr- a drug in which they could save money by switching to a generic would, 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 and it was okay with their doctor, would they want us to talk to them or could we just go ahead and do it? And when you do that, about half the people say, no, if it's okay with my doctor, it's fine with me. And that really helps a lot because every, every outreach that the company could avoid to the patient 
um, made it much more likely that we could um, make the switch just because you can't always get through to the, the, um, to the patient. The other thing that you can do um, uh, is uh, you can put people in these very, you know, sort of aggressive programs, which is you, you start with a generic medication. And if that doesn't work for you, then you can move on to a branded product, but you must start with the generics. And there, there are plan sponsors who did that uh, and didn't ask the patients at all. There were others who said, let's try this. Let's put the patients in the program, but give them six weeks to opt out. So if they don't want to be in this program that requires them to try generics first, let them, you know, let them tell us. And when you do that, you get, you know, you get about 90% of the way to this, you know, aggressive program, but still preserve individual uh, patient choice. So it's much more acceptable on the part of the patients and it saves almost as much money as a mandatory program. Hmm. So instead of a, a mandatory generic program or let's say a mandatory step therapy program, they are sort of opted into an automatic substitution. When they go to the pharmacist, um, the pharmacist basically automatically swaps without uh, asking them at that point? Yeah, well, there's two two different two different programs. The step therapy program, um, you know, is one in which you have to try generic first, then you can move on to a branded product that doesn't work for you. the The opt out version of that is we put people into that program, and they said we we said we put you into this program, and what that means is if you ever need uh, a drug in this category, let's say a cholesterol lowering drug, you're going to start off with a generic, and then if you you know if that doesn't work, that's how you get to a brand. But if you don't, if you want to avoid all this. Just let us know. We'll take you out of the program. And when you do that, about you know maybe ten percent of the patients say I want out, and the rest of them sh- sort of shrug their shoulders and say, No, I mean you know we I really should try a generic first, right? So when you're thinking about your future self, you're much more reasonable. That's why we make you know that's why we make New Year's resolutions, right? That's why we plan <laughs> on exercising because we really care. Uh, you know when it's when the, when the hassles are in the future, um, you know we're very reasonable about our behaviors. And so part of this, part of why the opt-out strategy works for a step therapy program like that is, you know, people say, yeah, you know, really, I, I, of course I should try the lower cost drug. I mean, I wouldn't want, I, 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 I wouldn't want, you know, the, my neighbor to, to just get whatever medication and, and, you know, not, not at least try something that's been around for a long time, works really well and costs less. Um, so that's how that strategy worked. The other, the other strategy was we asked people in advance, if we found a medication, if we found you were on a high cost drug and a low cost drug would work and your doctor was okay with it, can we just make the switch without asking you? Um, we would always tell the patient that the, that the switch had been made, but it's really more of a logistical, um, you know, skip. In other words, if if the patient says, look, I don't, if it's okay with my doc, it's okay with me. Just let me know when it happens. You don't have to ask me ahead of time. If you have to ask the patient ahead of time, then many times you lose the opportunity to make the switch because you call the patient, the patient's at work, not at home, or the patient's at, you know, obviously at dinner and you don't want to, you don't want to interrupt dinner, et cetera. So anytime you can avoid an outreach to anybody, that's better. You cannot avoid an outreach to a physician because the script has to be rewritten and you can't just dispense something that the doc didn't write a prescription for. So that's always mandatory. So you did the, so in in that case, the prescription pharmacy manager took the the did the work of contacting the physician and getting the physician to change the script and you just yeah. sort of had advance approval blanket approval from the participant uh, in all cases if my doc's okay with it go ahead and swap me out and just let me know 
Yeah, that's right. Um, and so, um, and most of the patients are okay. You know, if you, you actually, if you start with the doctor and then the doc says it's okay and you call the patient, you say, we've, you know, we have this opportunity. Your doc has said it's okay. Is it okay with you? Almost all patients say, yeah, I'd go, like to go ahead and do it. But by getting the pre-approval, you don't have to even reach out to the patient before you can make the, before you actually make the switch, before you fulfill the, the new prescription, which is a huge advantage because you lose, I don't know what it was, maybe a third of the, you know, of the opportunities because you just can't get a hold of the patient in time. I mean, you have to send some drug to the patient, right? The, the patient needs their medications. At some point, the clock runs out. You have to send them their medication. So, um, you know, if you can avoid an outreach by getting somebody to give you an approval in advance, you're much more likely to see success come out the back end. And these are, you know, these are just, they all seem reasonable in, in retrospect, but the, the reason that they don't naturally happen when we're building our business processes is that when we're building our business processes, we're using our 50 bits, we're using the rational part of our mind, and we somehow think that that's the way we behave and our patients behave and our customers behave 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And it's just not. I mean, most of the time we don't. And I can just give you an example. I mean, your listeners may be scratching their heads and, you know, what is this really, you know, really, but just think about driving your car. You know, when you first learn to drive your car, it takes everything you've got to do it. <laughs> you're, you know, you're thinking about the rear view mirror and the side, the, the, you know, the side mirrors and how hard do I turn the steering wheel to the left or the right and which pedal do I push? And if I've got a manual transmission, I mean, that's even, you know, that's way over the top. And backing up, you know, that's a big deal. If, heaven forbid I should have to parallel park, right? I mean, it's just, it takes everything that you've got. But after a couple of months, you know, it's all automatic. You get in your car now, you don't think about any of those things. Right. That's the 50 bits part. So when you're first learning how to drive, you're using your 50 bits. And part of what's great about being human is if you do the same thing over and over again, we get what we call muscle memory, but it's not really muscle memory. It's the transferring of that behavior from the 50 bits, the really scarce 50 bits, to the rest of the 10 million bits, and it happens all automatically. And so most of our most of what we do every day happens automatically under the radar, and we don't we don't see it. I mean, our attention is incredibly scarce. But we build our programs, we build our offerings, we build our user interfaces as if people had way more than um, 50, 50 bits. Uh, and it's a fundamental shift in the way you understand why people do what they do and what's causing, quote, bad behaviors. Before we leave the topic of medications, I was just looking again in the book at the amazing statistics that you found, both about patients good intentions up front, that they, they really do want to make smart choices that are good for their health as well as good for their employer economically. They're not trying to screw their employers. And, um, and of course, the bad intentions that are uh, the good, they have good intentions, but due to inattention or in inertia, they end up making bad decisions. And then the success rates that you've, you've had in implementing these strategies tend to be around 90% on, on the generic instead of brand name medication and home delivery instead of retail pharmacy, uh, which, of course, improves compliance. But um, what about this one about helping the participant choose a lower-cost provider, which in, in the case of medications would be choosing a lower-cost pharmacy? You know, most of the time, in terms of access, it doesn't really matter. Like, if you think about it, you you can see a Walgreens across the street from a CVS, and you don't really need both of those people in the network. And, and on the other corner is the grocery, you know, the you know sort of local grocery store that might also have a pharmacy as well. So you could have three, you know, on four corners, you might have three pharmacies. 
Um, and so the way you do that is you, you, um, you change what's in the network. And then what we did was um, we explained to, we just sent a letter and said, you know, the, the pharmacy that you're using um, is going to go out uh, of the network. And uh, here are th three other options that are just as close or closer to your home. And um, if you don't want to, you know, if, if, you, if you want to stay with the original pharmacy, just let us know. Um, so the way, the reason that works is that you've sort of elevated this question about where do I get my prescription drugs from the 10 million bits that's below the radar to the 50 bits that's above the radar. And your 50 bits are saying, what do I really want to do with this right now? Do I want to make the phone call or do I want to just go ahead and switch when it's time to switch? And most people say, no, I'll just go ahead and switch when it's time to switch unless I really, really, really like that pharmacy. Yeah. And then I'll call and say, I want out. But, you know, nine out of 10 people don't call uh, to, to one out and they actually do switch. So you basically, you get to the same end result where, well, 90% or better of the people go ahead and switch to the lower cost pharmacy and yet you avoided the... Um, flack uh, and complaints of the people that really had, they really cared or they had some legitimate issue, like there's no other pharmacy in their area. So you just avoid all yeah. of that noise. You avoid all of that noise. That's exactly right. And what we found, in fact, was um, the people who did opt out of that program were people who were, were further away from the options. So people who lived in more rural, you know, sub, uh, rural settings that had only, you know, one store that was close and it happened to be the one that was, you know, not going to be in the network. Those were the folks, they were maybe, I think maybe three times more likely to opt out of the program. But the, all of the Express Scripts programs, all the examples that, you know, come that are in the book that are tied to Express Scripts, and there are a bunch of examples that are not tied to Express Scripts. Certainly what Express Scripts tapped into among its clients about the, of the plan sponsors, where HR people, you know, ju they just understandably do not like to use, to have mandatory programs if they can avoid it. You know, if you could have a voluntary program that worked almost as good as a mandatory program, uh, there's a lot of appetite for that. And that's what all of the, you know, that's what all of these things did, right? They, they say, basically, we're going to preserve your choice. You may have to tell us that you want out, but if you really care about it, you can, you, you can get out of this program. When you do that, you see fantastic things happen. And, um, you know, that, that's what fueled a lot of the innovation at the company. That's very smart. That makes, that makes great sense. So of the seven strategies, we've been talking about the three power strategies, which are uh, setting a default, you know, that we're also known as letting it ride, requiring yep. active choice. And then we've touched a little bit on locking in good intentions, sort of this pre-commitment idea. Maybe as yeah. we uh, as we wrap up our conversation, it would be good. To, uh, we've talked a, a lot about the prescription example, but can you give us another example of this uh, locking in good intentions in the, more of an area of like physical activity? Sure. We're all familiar with this, right? When I first got together with my wife, she said, Bob, you've got to get rid of all these TV sets. And I said, well, I don't really have a problem with these TV. You know, I, I, I watch a show or something like that every once in a while. And she said, that's not the, that's not it. I have a problem. You know, so my wife, <laughs> if there's a TV around, will watch really for four hours, five hours, something like that. And she knows she has a problem. So she's never had a TV around. And so we threw all the TVs out and it was, it was sort of tough for two weeks. And then I kind of got used to not having a TV around. That's pre-commitment. It's making a decision in the present that makes a tempting but uh, self-defeating, you know, sort of outcome or behavior in the future 
uh, much more difficult. So for us to watch a TV show now is a big production, right? We have to go someplace that's got a TV or go rent a hotel room or, uh, you know, whatever. So that's an, that's an example from our personal life. I'll give you an example at, at, as an employer. Um, at Express Scripts, we're very interested in people sort of walking more. And every we noticed every at the end of the year, you know, between Thanksgiving and the and the winter holidays, people would start to eat a little more and put on pounds. And so we had this walking program that would happen in early in the next year, and uh, you would walk with all of the you know the C suite managers, you know, the leaders of the company. I don't know why you would want to walk with those folks, but that's, that was what the program was. I mean, they're nice people. I'm kidding. Um, and so, uh, it, so, you know, the folks in HR said, well, let's, we'll have a, we'll have a, um, a seminar and we'll have our chief medical officer explain all the advantages of walking. And so I, I said, that's great, but let me, can we, we'll do like a control trial here. So, so on one of them, um, we had two days where the chief medical officer gave the talk about how good it is to walk. And on one of them, when people left, we had a, a, a form that they filled out and we asked some questions about walking to make sure they listened. And we had them, uh, we asked them whether they intended to join the program uh, in, in January, you know, come on that date in January and walk with the senior staff. And they could say yes or no. We asked for their employee ID number and, and their name. And we collected those forms. And the next day, we did exactly the same thing. The only difference on the form was instead of asking them whether they intended to walk on January 15th, let's say it was, <clears throat> we asked them to um, pledge to walk. I, I so-and-so pledged to participate in the walking program on January 15th. And they signed it. And they... Um, you know, put in their employee ID number. And we also have said, you know, if you pledge, we're going to send you an Outlook reminder, a reminder on your calendar that will block that time on January 15th. And that was part of the whole pledge. They said yes. So January 15th rolls around. I tell the research staff to grab their mechanical pencils and their clipboards and go to the walking program and collect all of the employee ID numbers. And that allowed us to determine how many people actually, you know, came came through on their on the behavior of participating. And what we found was that there was no difference in the in the amount of people who said they intended to participate and they pledged to participate. Now that was a surprise to me because I thought by saying pledge and having people sign their name, uh, the, the rate at which people would say that was actually lower, but it was the same as people just saying, I intended to walk. And it was a pretty high percentage, wasn't it? Something like 80%? But these are people who showed up to those seminars, okay. right? So I don't know what the other 15% of people were doing at the seminars, um, but they didn't, They, they you know, after hearing the seminar, the, the, maybe it was the chief medical officer turned them off. He didn't, <laughs> they didn't want to walk with him or something. I don't know. Um, so the the rate at which people said they intended to walk and they pledged to walk, like I pledge and I'm signing and I'm going to get this Outlook, you know, calendar reminder, um, those were identical, which to me says that people who intended to walk actually intended to walk. They weren't saying I intended, but then didn't really intend. I mean, people thought that walking was a good idea and they would be there. What we did find was that it was about two and a half times more likely that um, people showed up if they signed the pledge hmm. than if they just said they needed to walk. And I don't know whether it was the act of pledging or the act of signing or the outlook, you know, the the reminder on their calendar, the slot on their calendar, but I tend to think it might be the the you know the calendar part. But at any rate, but at any rate, the bottom line is by pre-committing, by really committing, you know, now for something in the future, you're more likely to um to actually do what you want to do. 
So that's an example of how you can use pre-commitment to improve physical activity among employers, employees. It's a, you know, I think it's a small example, but that that idea of um, getting people to make a decision today for their future selves and tying it into the calendar is actually really important. I think it could be useful for um, flu vaccinations, um, for all, you know, for all kinds of things. Um, and, and I think there's, uh, I think there's maybe a little more work to be done there, but I think it's a really, you know, really fascinating area. Well, the book again is The Power of 50 Bits, The New Science of Turning Good Intentions into Positive Results. And speaking of good intentions, Bob, the overall book has a very optimistic message, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Uh, you know, and, uh, and people have asked me, you know, you, they, when, you seem like really optimistic. You know, this book seems really optimistic. You seem like an optimistic guy. And I say, well, gee, thanks, but I didn't start that way. You know, I, I was pretty, you know, maybe uh, maybe more objective. I, ho- I don't think I was pessimistic, but, but maybe what, what I learned um, is that, you know, we're not – it, it, our bad behaviors, the hiccups that we have, the fact that we don't exercise as much as we should, that we don't sleep as well as we should, that we don't eat as well as we should, that maybe we drink too much, that um, you know, we, we don't save uh, enough for retirement, that maybe we don't spend enough time with our children or our loved ones, that all these things, you know, these are not moral failings. These, this, isn't the, this isn't that we're misinformed or poorly educated or just not smart enough to know. You know, that's not the problem. Most of us actually have really good intentions. And it's so refreshing to get up every morning as somebody who's, you know, in the behavior change business. Um, I mean, think about it. You could get up every morning and say, I got to go deal with these really stupid, morally bankrupt, you know, poorly educated people. Or you could get up every morning and say, you know, there's a bunch of people out there that want the right thing. And the problem is that their brains just can't attend to everything all the time. Today, I'm going to work on some strategies to activate the good intentions that are already out there. That is, I don't know if it's optimistic. It's actually, that's actually the truth. It's just so refreshing that, um, that that's the situation that we're in. I mean, there's a lot of gold out there just waiting, behavioral gold, just waiting to be tapped. And people who would be happy to have that uh, stuff stuff happen. You know, behaviors, like I said, is just mission critical to so much of the human endeavor. And the book, you know, the book is just a real shot across the bow at um, how we've been going about this the wrong way. And fortunately, the right way is so much more uplifting and upbeat and, and effective. Well, I know we've shared a lot of information, but there's actually so much more in the book, and it uh, has a very helpful overarching framework that makes the strategies a lot more digestible and easier to put into action. But where can folks find out more about you and about your book? Come to my website. It's www.50bits, F-I-F-T-Y-B-I-T-S dot you can find out about the book, um, lots of blog posts, plenty of opportunity for people to provide feedback. And if you want to get in touch with me, you can do it there as well. Bob Neese, thanks for joining us on Workforce Health Engagement. Thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. All right, Engagers, that wraps up this episode. Again, the book is The Power of 50 Bits, and we'll provide the information and links that Bob Neese mentioned on our show notes for this episode. You can find the show notes at engagingleader.com forward slash WHE29, as in Workforce Health Engagement, episode 29. 
Our thanks to Monica Harrison, our producer, Tom Hitchcock, our programming director, Cecily Leahy, our web intern, Rick Tarrant, our announcer, and Max Brody, who composed our theme music. Until next time, remember, over the long term, a program of the day won't help you boost employee health, productivity, or your bottom line. Nope, for sustainable success, you need an integrated approach to workforce health engagement.